leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The placebo response in clinical trials can derail a promising experimental therapy that might benefit patients. In cases where trials rely on subjective endpoints or patient-reported outcomes, the placebo response can be more pronounced. Tools for Patient has developed a means of identifying patients who are likely to be placebo responders and allow trial sponsors to take steps to account for that in clinical studies. We spoke to Erica Smith, Vice President of Business Development at Tools for Patient, about the placebo response, the consequence this phenomenon has on drug development, and how the company is seeking to address this problem. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about clinical trials, the placebo effect, and your company, Tools for Patients. Let's start with the placebo effect in trials, though. How problematic is this for companies developing new therapies? How often does a high placebo response derail a potentially promising therapy? Absolutely. That's a great question. So, you know, we all know everyone that's developing drugs recognizes that the placebo response or the phenomenon in which patients have a positive response to a dummy or sham treatment um, is a very serious issue in drug development. You know, currently double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials are the gold standard for evaluating drug efficacy, and it's very difficult for for drugs to obtain regulatory approval unless they can show superiority over a, a placebo treatment. But the complexity of the placebo effect is profound, and it makes it very difficult to um, to actually evaluate true drug efficacy. Um, so the effect size, which is the the, um, the uh, size of the drug effect relative to the size of the placebo effect, um, is is really the the critical issue. And we know that the placebo effect, for example, is is increasing over time. So this is reducing the the effect size in diseases like pain, depression, and psychiatric disorders. So the, this reduction in the effect size over time um, results in uh, increased difficulty to show efficacy, even for drugs that are efficacious. Um, it increases clinical trial size. It increases the timeline of clinical drug development and the risk. And all of these things increase the expense of trials. And it uh, importantly, it delays patient patient access to new drugs and in many therape- therapeutic areas where those drugs are, are very needed. So it's a very uh, substantial issue. It's been estimated in the last 10 years or so in pain, particularly 
that about 90% of drugs have failed uh, late-stage clinical trials in part as a, as a response to the placebo effect. So it's, a, it's a quite a significant issue. Well, would that also suggest that a placebo effect could be getting drugs that really aren't efficacious to market? It's actually, the, the, the problem is actually the opposite. So the placebo effect makes it so difficult to show efficacy that it's preventing drugs that are efficacious from reaching the market. So um, what it's doing is it's obscuring the true efficacy of the drug, therefore making it more difficult for companies to actually um, be able to demonstrate that to the regulatory bodies. You've developed a tool called PlaySpell that is designed for drug developers to identify placebo responders and on a patient-by-patient basis determine who might be most likely to have a placebo effect. What makes one patient more likely to have a placebo effect than another? That's a really good question. And essentially, you know, we need to understand a couple things about the placebo response. The first is that it's a psychobiological phenomenon. So um, it involves both the the psychology of the patient, so that part of that is their personality. Um, It involves the, the biology of the patient. So we know, for example, using fMRI and PET studies that patients um, that receive placebo have certain areas in their brain that are activated. They can result in release of certain neurotransmitters, for example. So there is a, a true biological response. Um, and there are genetic components. So all of these things are, are components of the individual patient. On a population basis, we know that things like age and gender and patient geography, which can also infer cultural influences, um, will impact the placebo response. So there's all the, these different factors that, um, taken together, can can describe which patients you know may have be a high placebo responder. So the tool that we've developed at Tools for Patient um, is the culmination of, of several years, about five years now, of research um, into the placebo effect, and it really aims to identify those factors in each individual patient. Um, that makes it, you know, uh, that gives it a high propensity to be a high placebo responder. And things like I mentioned, demographics, um, age and gender, geography, the medical history of the patient. So, for example, how long they've had a specific disease, how many drugs they're taking for the disease, um, the intensity of the disease at baseline, so at the start of the clinical trial. And very importantly, we're one of the first groups to really be able to systematically integrate personality traits into this into this approach. And all these things are combined and weighted in different ways using our proprietary algorithm to come up with a score that describes each patient's um, likelihood of having a strong placebo response in the trial. How does it work? What's the process you do for a clinical trial sponsor? Yep. So so what we're trying to target with, with Placibel is actually the variability in data that the the um, placebo effect uh, brings to clinical trial data. So the, one of the issues with the placebo effect is because each patient is unique, each patient has a very unique response to placebo, and this, this is an issue for both patients in a placebo group as well as patients in a, that are treated with active drug. So some component of the response in patients treated with active drug is actually attributed to the placebo response. So the, the, the underlying issue, if every 
patient responded to placebo in the same way, it would be much easier. But the underlying issue is that this is a main driver of variability in clinical trial data. So um, the variability in the data makes it very difficult to distinguish the difference between the placebo group and the drug-treated group. So the way our tool works, at the outset, um, the, the team that developed the tool uh, wanted to make sure it was as easy to execute and had as a minimal burden on the clinical trial team and the clinical site staff. So essentially, all we do is submit the patients to a personality questionnaire. It takes about 35 to 40 minutes to complete, very straightforward, and it assesses uh, multiple different uh, personality traits in the patient. And we collect that data from, from the patients as well as some standard uh, patient data that would be collected in the trial anyway, uh, things like I mentioned, the patient demographics, the patient medical history. And these things are combined into our proprietary algorithm that is calibrated on a disease-by-disease -disease basis. Um, and the algorithm then outputs uh, a single number for each patient. It's called the Placidol covariate. Um, and that covariate is then used as any baseline covariate would, could be used in the ultimate statistical analysis. So it aims to reduce the variability in the data due to the placebo response um, and improve the ability to demonstrate efficacy and ultimately de-risk the trial and the clinical development process. Once you identify people who are more likely to respond to a placebo, what do you do with them? Do you exclude them or do you make sure they're evenly distributed among the different arms of a trial? So, so that's, that's, that's a very good question, and, and really the, these data can be used in, in a variety of ways. So any covariate that's calculated in a, in a clinical trial can be used for any of those things, for patient selection, for patient stratification, and for data adjustment. And I'll talk about each of those individually. So um, theoretically, the, the data could be used for patient selection or to include or exclude patients in a trial based on the outcome of our assessment. Um, that may or may not be advised depending on the strategy of the, of the program and the stage of development. There, there are a couple issues with that. So first, um, there is the possibility in many diseases that the patients that are high placebo responders may also be high drug responders. And the converse is also true. So patients that do not respond well to placebo often do not respond well to drugs. So while you might be tempted to exclude placebo responders as a means to increase the effect size, that might backfire and it actually might decrease the effect size because you're losing some of your strong drug responders as well. Um, the regulators, once you start limiting the population in which you're testing a drug, the regulators in pivotal for pivotal trials may, may uh, in uh, uh, impose a limitation on the label of the drug. So there may be labeling issues down, down the line. Um, and as well, any time you, you um, exclude any large population, it makes it more difficult to recruit patients for, for trials. Um, the placebo responders in any given, given population could be 50% of the entire population. So if you include the, exclude them, it's, gonna, it's going to lengthen the length of the trial and make it, again, more expensive and delay access to patients. So um, the tool that we, we have developed, Placibel, can be used to adjust data, which is a way to account for some of the high placebo responders that actually allows you to leave them in the trial. Um, as I mentioned, it can also be used for patient stratification. So 
could be a very um, viable tool, in, particularly in smaller uh, patient populations or in early stage trials, to make sure there are an equal number of placebo responders um, in each study arm of the trial. But really, the, the, um, the mechanism or the, the way in which we propose to use this, these data would be to adjust the data at the end of the, at the, end of the trial. So it's essentially a statistical tool to reduce the variance that the placebo response um, adds to the data and improve the ability to show treatment efficacy. Are there indications or classes of drugs where there's a greater risk of a placebo response? It, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, classically, one of the, the therapeutic areas that has been most plagued by the placebo response has been pain. And there are obviously many different types of pain, acute pain, chronic pain, osteoarthritis pain, neuropathic pain. Um, but ultimately, um, pain is one area where the placebo response has made it very difficult to show treatment efficacy. And, and that's one area that we've done quite a bit of, of work in currently. Um, also, in any neurologic diseases, uh, Parkinson's disease, for example, I mentioned psychiatric disorders, things like, things like schizophrenia and depression. But there are also other diseases, and really anything that has a subjective endpoint or a patient-reported outcome um, is, will tend to have a strong placebo response. And anything that has a sensory endpoint, so dryness, for example, dry eye disease, um, uh, itching, so atopic dermatitis, things like that, anything where there's a sensory endpoint that the patients are evaluating um, uh, the, the response of that to any sort of treatment is really a good candidate for use of Placibel. And we've explored its utility in, in, um, in therapeutic areas and disease states in a, sort of across the board. There's a big push towards using patient-reported outcomes right now. Does that become a bigger challenge, or does that necessitate using the tool in a different way? Um, I, I think the tool is very, very amenable to being used for any type of patient-reported outcome. And, and you're absolutely correct. And, and we believe that this is going to become um, more and more common, particularly as part of the 21st Century, Century Cares Act, where, um, where companies running trials are, are encouraged to, to focus and emphasize the endpoints that are most meaningful to patients and often those, those endpoints are things like pain or things like quality of life or things, you know, like ability to carry on your activities of daily living, which are often assessed by as a patient-reported outcome. Um, so these are the types of things where Placibel, we think, can really help to minimize state of variability. And, and we suspect that, that this is going to become a bigger and bigger problem as, uh, as time goes on. What impact does this tool have on statistical significance? That, that's a really good question. So um, what our data has shown currently in pain is that, is that we can explain about 30% of the variability in clinical trial data due to the placebo response. And as I mentioned, that applies to both the active treated group and the placebo treated group. So that, that's quite a significant amount of, of reduction in variability. What that means is that it increases clinical trial power. So in general, a 30% reduction in variance translates to about a 12 to 14% increase in power. So if you have a, a, a trial that's powered, say, at, at 0.7, it increases the power to, to 0.8 to 0.84. Another way to look at it 
is it has the same effect as, or it gives a trial the same power as a trial that has about 30 to 40% more patients. So what I mean by that is if you have a trial um, that is 100 patients with a given uh, statistical power, um, using Placibel makes that 100 patients seem like it's 130 or 140 patients um, because it increases the, po the power of the trial to that level. So from a statistical perspective, one of the really important components of Placibel is it decreases the risk of type 2 error. So what I mean by that is it decreases the likelihood that a company will reject a drug and not pursue it if that drug is truly efficacious, but it does so without increasing the risk of type 1 error. So it does so without actually increasing the risk of accepting a drug that's not efficacious. And that's very important both to us because it's a fairly conservative approach, but it's also extremely important to the regulatory bodies. You know, so we are not actually um, developing a method that could give you a false positive result. We're just trying to reduce the risk of a false negative. What, is, what has the discussion been with regulators and what have you done to validate the tool? Uh, again, another great question. So um, we've had several discussions with the FDA and the EMA, and both of those conversations are ongoing. I think one common, um, one common outcome from all the conversations is that the regulatory bodies recognize the, the crippling effect that the, the placebo effect has on drug development and are tr is truly open to innovative and novel solutions. You know, there are things that, that companies have done for the past several decades, altered trial designs and patient training, and, and these, this, uh, this tool can be used easily in conjunction with all of those. But the reality is that those things may have had a positive impact, but they haven't solved the problem yet. So the regulators appreciate the need to have a new tool to be able to enable drug development by reducing the placebo effect. That being said, this tool is, is still relatively new. It's, it's a very novel approach. It's never been done before. So we're, we're currently in discussions um, to try and develop a, a, um, a path towards approval for something that doesn't neatly fit into any of the boxes in, that the regulators have. Um, for example, it doesn't fit into the Drug Development Tools Qualification Program at the FDA. So while the FDA was very receptive to the idea, they don't have a means to give a quote-unquote stamp of approval. So, so where we are right now is we've agreed with the agencies that they will evaluate it on a case-by-case -case basis as they would with any covariate that's included in a clinical trial package and as part of a pre-IND meeting um, and as part of the, the statistical uh, analysis plan. So that's essentially the bottom line is that it's just the covariate. A covariate approach is, is generally considered very low risk, um, and that's how the regulators are approaching it right now. Are there companies using the tool in a clinical trial right now? We do have companies using the tool in trials right now, yes. In the broader view of the company, where does this fit in, and do you just provide this service, or is this part of a broader range of clinical trials consulting you do? Yep, yep. So so the, the founders of Tools for Patient, you know, set out five years ago to really address multiple um, different issues that plague the drug development industry by developing predictive tools. Um, and Placibel is the first predictive tool that we have, have developed and are um, commercializing. So we're making this available to sponsors in, in two ways. 
Um, the first is in a collaborative way in areas where the tool has not yet been calibrated. So I, I did mention that the Placibel model is disease-specific. So if we haven't worked in a specific disease and a company is interested in applying Placibel, we do so in a, in a collaborative way that has um, essentially at, at little to no cost to the sponsor um, and in a way that is highly scientific and really um, engaged at developing uh, a, a highly predictive tool for that, for that particular indication. Um, in areas where we have already um, have a validation that we can, we can sort of provide this off the shelf, um, we're doing this as a service to, um, to help sponsors. And, and it's still done very collaboratively and, and um, with a, a, a lot of, of scientific background, a lot of scientific interaction with our team. Um, we have been approached by several companies that have had trials that um, have, were, were inconclusive because of a strong placebo response. And we do have, um, have been able to, in some cases, use some of the advanced mathematical and statistical tools that we've developed while developing Placibel to help companies figure out what may have happened in the course of that trial. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes everything that's been done has been done. But sometimes we can add a little something extra to provide some insight, and, and we've engaged with, with companies like that as well. Um, I can say there are, there are certainly other tools that are in our pipeline um, that we're working on as well, but, but that information is not something we're disclosing at this point. Erica Smith, Vice President of Business Development at Tools for Patient. Erica, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. I really appreciate being able to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.